Good morning. So good to see you here and uh, everyone joining us online later. We welcome you as well. Uh, just glad that we could be together. I uh, want to welcome the Goodwin family uh, in town for uh, uh, Death in the Family uh, from New York. And got to meet uh, Carol and Linda earlier, but I just want to welcome you. And so thanks for being here. Also, John is back here with us. How's Avery doing? Great. Avery's doing awesome. So a couple, two weeks old now? So two weeks. So so glad to hear that. So um, please be praying for the Goodwin family and the Girton still and Max and Phyllis. Good to see you both this morning and continue to lift them up and good to see everyone. Uh, I feel like I could just go through and just, uh, you know, <laughs> hello to everyone. Acknowledge you. I also want to ask you to be praying for Brent Williams uh, this week. Uh, Brent goes in on Wednesday or Thursday. Which day is that? Someone help me out on that uh, for surgery. I don't know what day that is. I'm, I'm losing it right now. If I had my phone, I'd tell you. Um, he's going in for surgery this week. Just pray for Brent uh, this week. He's having open heart surgery. It's a long uh, surgery and serious surgery. And so uh, please keep him in your prayers. I know he would appreciate that uh, this week as well. So today we are going to be looking at mercy. We're continuing on in our series, Dust to Dust. And it's rooted in Genesis chapter 3, where... Um, Part of the curse, the Lord says, from dust we came and to dust we return. We will all pass away. We'll all die at some point in, um, in time. And we are mortal beings, but with an eternal spirit, an eternal soul. And so as we've been walking through this Lenten season, moving toward the cross, we want to be reminded that God is doing a work in us and through us, and he's doing something powerful. And so we want to be aware of these things. And so today we talk about mercy but as we start, I want to ask you to consider this question of what is God like? What is God like? Now, you can quickly turn and you can give me a list that you see in Scripture. But what is God like? Maybe the next question we need to ask is how do you see God? How do you view God? How would you describe God personally? And the reason I ask that question is because how we answer that question really determines how we live our life out how we interact with other human beings, how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see a relationship with God. It's important to know how we see God and who God actually is. So I want you to take yourself back in time, a long time, and imagine yourself as an Israelite in the days of Egypt, in captivity. So as a young child, you're walking around, you're looking at Temples and altars and drawings and worship of various gods taking place around you. <clears throat> the sun god, the moon god, the god of fertility, the god of water, the god of harvest, the god of hunting and gathering. And you as a human being, you know these gods are out there somewhere. They're distant gods. And what you want to do is you want to make sure the gods are not angry. So you worship, so you sacrifice so you say certain things to keep these angry gods appeased because you want a good harvest. You want the sun to shine. You want a family. So you offer these sacrifices. And then fast forward a little bit in your time and you find yourself one day standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up on the mountain to meet with God. This God was different. You've heard about this God. You know this God but this God comes close to human beings and wants human beings to come close to him. And so Moses comes down off the mountain 
after speaking with the Lord, and his face is radiant, it's glowing, and you're like, wow, something's, something's different. And what Moses says is, this is what God told me about himself. And these are the words from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, being God, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. And so you see this God who says, hey, I'm one who comes close. I am a God of love, but I'm also a God of justice. Not one just to fear, not just one to, to appease, but I am a gracious, merciful, compassionate, loving God who draws near. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. This is a radical change. This is a radical difference than any other God that you've encountered. Okay, now let's travel back into the present day. There's a seminary professor at Northern Seminary named Dr. Scott McKnight, and, and he asked his students a similar question that I asked you. In one of his intro classes, he gives his students a 24-question survey and says, they're all questions about God's personality, if we can say that. So what is God like? And so he has his students fill these out and then he collects them, and what he does is he gives another survey to his students, another 24 questions. He's reworked the wording, but it's about themselves. How do you see yourself? What is your personality like? He found out about 90% of the time, the student's personality was almost identical to the way they saw God. See, and what Dr. McKnight, he said about this, he said, even though we like to think we are, we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. So what he's saying is that we as human beings, we feel that God loves who we love, that God hates who we hate, that God is passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. And you look around and you're like, why are more people not passionate about this? This is what God is passionate about. No, it's what you're passionate about. It is one of the things that God is passionate about. You feel that God votes how you vote, that God's view on life, sexuality, the economy, justice, race is the same as yours. And so you're really confused why everyone else doesn't see the world the same way you do. John Mark Comer, who's an author, pastor, he, he wrote these words. He said, the ISIS terrorist beheading the infidel, the prosperity gospel celebrity preacher getting out of his Hummer after a late night drinks with Kanye West, the Westboro Baptist picketer outside a military funeral, screaming. The Hindu sacrificing a goat to Shiva. The African witch doctor sacrificing a little boy. The U.S. Army sniper praying to God before he takes the shot. The peace activist risking her neck to stop another war because she believes in Jesus' teaching on enemy love. The gay singer who stands up at the Grammys and says thank you to God for his song about a one-night stand. The Catholic nun giving up a quote-unquote normal life to live in poverty and work for social change. All these men and women do what they do because of what they believe about God. The same thing is true about us. We do what we do because of what we believe about God. Same thing with your family members, same thing with your friends, same thing with your neighbors and coworkers. 
We do what we do because of what we believe about God. So therefore, we need to make sure we have an accurate view on who God is and what God has said. The French philosopher Voltaire, anyone been reading Voltaire this week? Lots of reading. So, Molly? So, really? (laughs) Impressive. So, (laughs) he said this. (laughs) MZ, I love the reaction there. All right. (laughs) Voltaire said this. Said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. So what Voltaire is saying is like, yeah, we believe we're made in God's image, but then we're like, but this is who I am. Therefore, I want to project my image back on you. So I return to Exodus 34. I return to what God said about himself. Especially in a passage in the Old Testament where so many people point to the God of the Old Testament as violent and oppressive and, and the list goes on. This is what God said is important about knowing him. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the merciful. The mercy is this baseline action, this baseline reality of who God is and has always been. This compassion, this feeling, and then this mercy, this is action. This is who God is. He is compassionate and he's merciful. Now, mercy is a hard thing in scripture to really unpack because our English language is so limited. So mercy that we find in scripture are all of these things that I'm about to tell you. It's an inner feeling of sympathy or love in helping action. It's compassion, it's favor, it's grace, it's despair. It is affection or yearning like a mother to a child. It's forgiveness. It's divine love manifested in saving acts of grace. It's steadfast love. It's pity. It's to sympathize. These are the baseline of who God is. Many of us, we, we start from a point where we feel like God's baseline emotion or action towards us is anger or shame or disappointment, when that is a false view of God, that God starts at this compassion and mercy. That's where he moves from in every action and every word is compassion and mercy. There's someone in scripture, another Old Testament individual who said words very similar to what we find in Exodus 34. This individual said this, he said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now you might be surprised in just a moment, if you don't know who this is, of why he said this and the context that it was said in. But before we get to who said this, there's there's two approaches when we encounter the mercy of God, the compassion of God. We either step into it and we embrace it, we trust God for who God is and what God said. We, we forgive because we've been forgiven. We trust God because he's faithful and he's true. We do the things that Jesus calls us to do. We step into this mercy because we've embraced this mercy that is ours. Or we do something else. We run. We may still believe that mercy is at the core of who God is, but we run from it either because we're afraid of it or because we don't like the decisions that, that, that come from it or the actions that come from it, or we may even think there's a better way. But we still can believe it and run. So we either embrace it or we run. 
This individual who said these words in the Old Testament, that I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, a merciful God, he ran from God because he knew it was true. He wanted things done differently. And he really wanted this mercy for himself, but not for others. I know I can definitely relate to this individual. And I think that you can as well in many ways. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. We're going to look at the story of Jonah, the the narrative of Jonah this morning found in the Old Testament. Jonah is the one that spoke these words about who God is. And we'll return to that verse in a few moments. So I'll give you a moment to turn to Jonah or click on your device. So Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, before we go any further, before we start to jump all over Jonah, I want us to notice something about Jonah. Jonah heard from the Lord. And in order for Jonah to hear from the Lord, he had to be attentive to the Lord. So we can assume there's a relationship there between Jonah and the Lord. That there was some sort of openness or pursuit or whatever it may be, is that the Lord spoke to him and Jonah listened. That's a lot to be said. But unfortunately, Jonah just said no when he heard the Lord call him. So Jonah is here. He's refusing to listen to God in this. And the reason he's refusing to listen to God is because he knows who the Ninevites are. The Assyrian people were brutal, were violent, were part of the reason that the Israelites were in exile. And so Jonah looked at these people who had hurt him, had hurt his family members, and he didn't want to go. See, Jonah gets on this boat and he heads the other way. And and I think most of us would have done the exact same thing. Now, I know there's some heroes who are like, yep, I will go. I will go. That's awesome. But I probably would have got on the boat. And most of the early readers, if not all of the early readers, would have been cheering Jonah on, saying, yes, you did the right thing. And here's why. If Jonah doesn't go, maybe the message doesn't get to the Ninevites. If Jonah doesn't extend himself to the Ninevites, this 120,000 people could be destroyed by God. And so I wonder if deep in Jonah, there's a little bit of this like, if I don't go, God can't save him. And I wonder too, as I study this, as I look at this, and, and you can wrestle with this later, is that I wonder if it wasn't so much that Jonah was running from the Assyrians, the Ninevites there, out of fear of them, I wonder because of what he said later on that we've already read that he was truly running from God. Because as he said, he knew God was compassionate. He knew God was gracious. He knew these things about God. So maybe he's running from God. So what he does is he gets on a boat and he's going along, storm comes up. There's, you know, interaction with the sailors, which is really interesting. He ends up getting thrown off the edge. Fish comes along. He ends up hanging out in a really uncomfortable spot for a number of days. He's praying. Fish spits him out, and he's back with the Lord saying something. And you can read all this later. But in Jonah chapter 3, 
Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. If you write in your Bible or you're taking notes, underline second time, circle second time, write second time. This is a God who is compassionate, who is gracious, who is merciful. I love second chances. I need second chances. So do you. This is a God of second chances, of third chances, of fourth chances. And he says this, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So here comes the result. He's out there, he's talking, he's saying Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And then verse 5, here's the result. They, they repent. They say, you're right. The Ninevites believe God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. So this is an outward sign of mourning. So anytime you see sackcloth or dust or ashes in scripture, it is this mourning, this grieving, this turning and going a different way. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? And here's a king not following the God of the Scriptures, Yahweh, the I am who I am. And he says, who knows? God, Yahweh, may relent and with compassion, mercy, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When they will not perish. Did you catch that? It's Jonah has received mercy. The sailors have received mercy. The king is receiving mercy. 120,000 people are about to receive mercy. There's mercy all over the story. Verse 10 says this, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, he relented. And he did not bring them the destruction he had threatened. God saved the people. Now, I watch a lot of kids' movies. I have kids and young kids. And, and at the end of many movies, kids' movies, there seems to be a song that comes on and everyone seems to hop up and start singing and dancing because the situation has been resolved. So at this point in my mind, in the book of Jonah, this is what happens. Like all the Ninevites get up and they start singing and dancing and having this big celebration. But we see that that's not the case for Jonah. This is not expect, this is not turning out how Jonah wants it to turn out. The original reader would have been like, no, 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 no. This can't be happening. But Jonah, chapter four, verse one. But Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Let's just clarify. It seemed very wrong that God's mercy and grace and compassion was poured out in 120,000 people. And so what did Jonah do? He became that's a word. Angry. 
Deep down, Jonah knew. He's going to say this in just a moment. He knew of God's love and mercy, and now he saw it play out in a very raw and real way in front of him. Verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, He, being Jonah, prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He just admitted, I was getting out of town because I didn't want you to save these people. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So Jonah is there, he's saying, God, I told you, you are exactly who you say you are. God's like, yes, I am. Jonah is just angry. And see, he didn't just get angry in this moment. He has been angry. He's had this low-level, just boiling, bubbling anger that has sat in his gut. That's why he tried to run away. And then when God saved him, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. See, Jonah, what he wanted is he wanted God's mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness and relenting from sending calamity. He wanted it all for himself, for his family, for his friends, but not for those people. Something pretty similar unfolding in our culture around us. We have this underlying just anger, this burning like, going on in us. And then God does something. And we're like, and then there's more and more. And so we're like, we're like, we want it for ourselves. We want your mercy, God, but not for that religion or country or skin color or orientation or political party or age or enemy or people group or fill in the blank. Not for them. There's this just going on and on and on and on. And then what do we do? Like as it continues to come up, it just starts coming out in our words. We start talking and we start our anger that sat here is now here. And not only is it here, we're going. Many people need to hear this message that I have because this is the way I see the world. This is the way it is. And this is the way God does too. This is what Jonah was processing. Jonah had social media. He would have been going nuts. God does not work like Jonah. Jonah's heart is not like God's. God's is full of mercy and compassion, and Jonah's is full of anger, rage, and disappointment. See, I read in the scripture verses like, for God so loved the... That's everyone, right? Yes, that is. That he gave his one and only son. Or Peter said this in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Not wanting... Is it on here? There we go. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Again, like the world, that includes everyone, right? Anyone and everyone means anyone and everyone in English, Greek, Hebrew, whatever you want to look it up. It means everyone. The Ninevites included. Whoever that person or people or group or whatever it is that you go about. This is Jonah's response to their repentance. Verse 3. 
Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He had so much anger and hate build up in him that I bet you he did not even know about. But as soon as it was in front of him, he's like, well, here we go. Let's just be raw and honest about it. He's saying, I would rather die than see this happen. Verse four, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I love this question. It's a question God asks us. And I'm not talking about people out there, the church. Is it right for you to be angry? See, God's baseline is mercy and compassion and grace, not anger. Unfortunately, too many Christians have engaged the world with anger instead of the baseline emotion and action that God operates from of mercy and compassion and love. Our baseline, especially in the last year, year and a half, has not been mercy. Jesus did not use angry mobs to evangelize the world. In fact, it was angry mobs who killed Jesus. Instead, Jesus calls us to creative, redemptive, individual, time-focused, loving acts of redemption in the world. He has called you where you are. He's called you into your school, into your workplace, into your city, into wherever it is. To walk with this mercy, not this anger. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Okay, we're going to pause right here. We're going to talk about emotions for a moment. little sidestep here. Emotions are not to be suppressed, Okay. Some of you have been taught to suppress emotions. Emotions are how we're wired as human beings, okay? So when you have an emotion, you need to ask yourself, what is this about? Why am I sad? Why am I angry? Why am I happy? What is it? Because it's kind of like a, a, a dial or an alert within your system. When something happens and you have an emotion, you go, what is it? Your body, your heart, your mind is telling you something is off or something is changing. So let's look at Jonah's emotions here, okay? And see how how he's doing. So he's angry about 120,000 people being saved, but he's very happy about a plant. Let's say there's something that's off a little bit here. But I ask us, church, followers of Jesus, Have we been like Jonah, angry about something that God is doing and we've been happy about a plant? Oh, this is is cute. It's nice. It's helping me. Right? I mean, there's displaced emotion. There's displaced reality that's going on in this world that we're walking in. Jonah is seeing this, 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 the stuff come out. 
And we've seen this come out. You've seen this come out this year. And so as it comes out, we're like, what, if, what am I doing with my anger? And what am I doing with my joy? And is it aligning with God? Because Jonah was not aligning with God in this. I love this next part because if you think God does not have a sense of humor, you need to pay attention to this next part. But at dawn, verse 7, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So God takes away these comforts. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So now this anger of the death of the plant has taken over the the anger of the salvation of humans. He said this. He said, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah can't see the mercy that the Father has given to him. It's just covered by anger. He can't see the compassion given to him. It's covered by anger. Verse 10, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? So was God aware of the sin and the actions of the Ninevites? He was fully aware of who the Ninevites were. He was fully aware of their sin, their violence, their oppression. Is God aware of the world around us? Absolutely. Compassion and mercy explode from the heart of the Father. As we walk through Lent, as we walk to the cross on Good Friday and then ultimately the the empty tomb on Easter, this is a season for us to, to reimagine to reconnect with, to fully grasp onto who God really is. And then as we walk to the cross, we start leaving these assumptions and anger and stuff behind us. It's this refining time for us to confess. It's for us to be reminded that the mercy of the Father is ours. It's yours. And it's for us to take, and not just to hold on to, Nick said this earlier, not just to hold on to, but it's to give away in the world around us. It's not ours to take and then to give anger to the world. It's to take the mercy that's ours and remind others of the mercy that is theirs. So as we wrap up, I want to ask a couple questions for you to wrestle with, to ponder with this week. So again, the first question, how do you view God? Do you look like God or have you made God look like you? Do you spend your days trying to earn mercy and love when it's already yours? How do you think God views you? Is it with mercy and compassion and grace? What about others? What about people that you just don't like? or you don't agree with? What is your baseline towards them, emotion and action? 
What does it look like to forgive people around you as you experience the forgiveness of the Father? And who are the people in your life that you have an opportunity to show mercy to? I'll tell you who they are. They're the people that annoy you. The people in your household, the people where you work, the people in your neighborhood, the people in this church, the person standing on this platform, whatever it may be, whoever it may be. So today and tomorrow and this week, when you get annoyed, have that little flag go up in your mind. This is a chance to show mercy. To be reminded of the mercy I've received and then to show mercy, compassion, grace, and love to this other person that needs mercy as well. And so I close with this verse from Hebrews. It says this, it says, the author said, may let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence. So this is the, that God doesn't look at you with shame, with anger, with disappointment. It's with love and compassion and grace. So let us approach this grace, this throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. We're receiving this mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We all have need. We all have brokenness. So do people around us. So we approach with confidence. We receive the mercy that is ours. And we find this grace to help us in times of need. Let's pray. Gracious Father, merciful Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your grace and your compassion and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you give us opportunity to reflect you, to continue to look up to you. God, when our eyes are drawn to the world around us, may we continue to look up to you. Lord, that you would refine our hearts, our words, our actions, to be filled with mercy and compassion and grace in a world that tempts us and pulls us to be anything but those things. So, Father, for those of us that call ourselves Christians, call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we would walk in the way of Jesus, Lord, that you would refine us and restore us and renew us. God, that you would help us with that anger that lies dormant within us and has, for many, just been brought out. God, may you bring, bring healing and hope in these places. Father, I just pause in this moment to give space for those of us that need to confess any sort of sin God, in these areas to you at this point, just take a moment to just quietly confess these to the Lord. And Jesus, may we receive mercy God, from you, God, in this moment, and Lord, in every step that we take. God, may it fill us and 
And may your spirit overflow from us. Lord, as we encounter opportunities to share mercy this week, that you would, your spirit would lead us, would direct us. And Father God, too, in this moment, Lord, you came to this earth to show us the way to the Father. Lord, your word says that no one comes to the Father except through you being Jesus. So in this moment in time, if there's anyone that has never confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have never admitted the fact that they're a sinner, wants to begin that walk, just take a moment. Just quietly pray, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done it my own way. And Lord, in this moment, I confess my sin to you. Thank you for taking my sin upon the cross as a sacrifice, as the ultimate payment. And so, Lord, I receive your forgiveness. And Lord, I commit in this moment to begin to walk with you, to walk in your compassion and grace and mercy. Lord, I want to say thanks. And so, Father, you are good. We love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the narrative within it that we can learn from. God, this week, may we be much more like Jesus when we're tempted to be like Jonah. So, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.